Today's reading is Matthew 5, verses 1 to 16. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we come to consider God's word, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, these are strange but significant words that our Saviour speaks. He speaks blessings on those whom the world would despise as cursed. And with these words, Jesus opens to us the strange new world of your kingdom. And so these are some of the most important, some of the most profound, the most significant words ever spoken. And therefore, gracious Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak them truthfully and in such a way that would make them, but especially their speaker, more wonderful, more glorious in our eyes. Teach us what he, the Lord of the church, would have us be as the church, and then give us the grace to embody it, to live it out. And we ask this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' sweet name we pray. Amen. Let me begin with these words of John Ortberg. Jesus's main vehicle on earth is going to be the church. And Jesus's main problem on earth is going to be the church. The church is to be the means by which others come to know Jesus for themselves. But it is also, in many cases, the greatest hindrance to others coming to know Jesus for themselves. Studies have shown that when people become Christians, it's often because they're so attracted by the lives of the Christians that they know. So much so that they want Christianity to be true before they actually know for themselves that it is. But the opposite is also true. That many are turned off of Christianity precisely because of what they see in the lives of those who claim to be Christians. So, for instance, the uh, 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, a prominent atheist, once said this. 
I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. But Nietzsche's not the only one. Mahatma Gandhi, that great campaigner for Indian independence, famously once said of Christianity, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. And the renowned poet, Percy Bysi Shashali, put it rather less delicately when he said, I could believe in Jesus if only he did not drag behind him his leprous bride, the church. Well, that great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, summed it up well when he said, the Bible is not the light of the world, it is the light of the church. But the world does not read the Bible, the world reads Christians. You are the light of the world. And the missionary theologian Leslie Newbigin explains, the church lives in the midst of history as a sign, instrument and foretaste of the reign of God. Now, if you think I'm just beating up on the church, hold on a minute, because it doesn't have to be that way. One of the reasons that the early church grew as it did was because it lived in the world in such a profoundly different way that it drew people's attention. So when horrible plagues swept through the Roman Empire in AD 165, killing about a third of its entire population, and then again in AD 251, when 5,000 people a day were dying in the city of Rome alone. The historical records show that the pagan priests fled and abandoned the temples to which the sick came for help. People were even throwing infected relatives into the street to die in a desperate attempt to protect themselves from the disease. Who took them in and cared for them? The Christians. So much so that the tutor of social and political theology, Stephen Backhouse, explains that you were statistically more likely to survive if you knew a Christian. Well, a couple of weeks ago at Pentecost, the birthday of the church, we started a new sermon series called We Are Church, exploring different ways that the New Testament describes what the church is and is called to be. And we're do doing that not just as a kind of academic exercise, but so that we can recover a truly biblical vision of what it means to be church. We started at Pentecost by seeing that the church is a community that's conceived by the Holy Spirit, not man-made, but God-breathed. Last week, we heard Peter underlining that the church isn't made of bricks and mortar, but rather of living stones, people like you and me. Today, we turn to the start of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to see that Jesus wants the church to be a countercultural community, which is first, a sign of his upside down kingdom. Second, to be in the world, but not of the world. And third, to be a visible and attractive alternative to the ways of the world. Michael Green writes, to follow Jesus demands a totally different way of life and is vital for the people of God. Here in the Beatitudes, we meet a distinctive lifestyle with radically different values and ambitions. 
Everything is at variance with life outside the kingdom. Nowhere is the difference between uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world more apparent than the Beatitudes, the blessings that Jesus pronounces at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a kind of manifesto for the kingdom of God. And thus for Jesus to begin it as he does, well, it's rather strange to say the least. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. These blessings may sound nice, but they're not the sort of people we would naturally think of as being blessed. I mean, who goes around saying, oh, you're being persecuted, oh, you're so blessed. God's kingdom is good news for those who are at the bottom of the world's pile. And let me make this point really, really clear at the outset. The Beatitudes are about good news, not good advice. And this is a really important distinction because many people read the Beatitudes as if Jesus is saying, live this way if you want to be blessed. But that is emphatically not what Jesus is saying. Rather, Jesus is announcing that the kingdom of God, which he is inaugurating, is good news for the poor in spirit, good news for the meek, good news for those who are desperate for justice. The blessings are simple statements of whom God favours, whom God is with. God is with those who mourn. God is with those who are persecuted for Jesus' namesake. Dallas Willard explains, the Beatitudes are not the teachings on how to be blessed. They're not instructions to do anything. They're explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting of the present availability of the kingdom through personal relationship to Jesus. The Beatitudes simply cannot be good news if they are understood as a set of how-tos for achieving blessedness. They would then only amount to a new legalism. So friends, do you see what this means? Jesus isn't saying that we have to try really, really hard to be poor in spirit. You have to try really, really hard to mourn. Now he's saying that the poor in spirit are in good shape to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. The good news is, as Tom Wright explains, that God is acting in and through Jesus to turn the world upside down, to turn Israel upside down, to pour out lavish blessings on all who now turn to him and accept the new thing that he is doing. The Beatitudes are a description of the kinds of people that you would expect to find gathered by and around Jesus. And that's why Dallas Willard says that any spiritual, spiritually healthy congregation of believers in Jesus will look more or less like these brands plucked from the burning. In a healthy church, you would expect to find the mourners. You would expect to find the meek. You would expect to find the poor in spirit. And so the church is to be a sign of Jesus' upside down kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of the world, simply by being a group of hopeless people who have found an unshakable hope in him. But the world has its own idea of blessedness and the world's beatitudes run something like this. 
Blessed are those who believe in themselves, for they will achieve anything they want. Blessed are the positive thinkers, for they won't need anyone to comfort them. Blessed are the self-assured and assertive, for they can go out and get whatever they desire. Blessed are those who have to have the latest thing, for they'll never feel left out. Blessed are the ruthless, for they will take the best seats in the boardroom. Blessed are those who follow their desires, for they know how to see a good time. Blessed are the winners, because it's the winners who write the history books. Blessed are those who go along with the crowd, for they will have many friends. Blessed are you when people speak well of you, for you'll have many followers on social media. Jesus turns the world's values on their heads, not only in his teaching, but in his life and in his ministry. Jesus demonstrates that in God's kingdom, power is weakness, weakness is power, and suffering leads to glory. And so the church is most true to itself, therefore, not when it lives by the world's values of success and wealth and power and beauty, but when it's confident enough in Jesus to dance to a different tune. In Jesus, there is a different way to be human. Those who believe that the meek will inherit the earth don't need to push themselves to the front of the queue. Those who know the availability of God's mercy are liberated to show mercy to others. I'm reminded of the story of Cory Ten Boom, who, uh, when uh, after a meeting, took the hand of the Nazi concentration camp guard who murdered her family members. The church, called by and gathered around Jesus, is to be an embassy of heaven on earth in each individual Christian, an ambassador. Now there's a whole sermon series waiting to be preached on the Beatitudes alone, but we've got to move on because for our present purposes, we're trying to see what Jesus thinks the church is all about. So let's move on to the next thing Jesus says. He goes straight from singing, oh, the joy of the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the justice seeking, the merciful, the pure hearted, the peacemakers and the persecuted to speaking directly to those gathered around him and saying to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus is speaking these words to those who have followed him up the hillside, to his disciples. And therefore he speaks these words to all who continue to gather around him to this day. Yes, to you. And to me, also, if we want to know what it means to be faithful as the church, then we'd better pay close attention. What then does Jesus mean by calling his disciples the sword of the earth? Well, there, there were two main functions of sort in Jesus' day. First, to preserve. Second, to season. Today, we tend to think of sort mainly as a seasoning. But in Jesus' day, it was the preservative function of sort that was most important. There were no fridges or freezers back then. If you wanted to help keep something fresh, especially meat, you would put salt into it. Because salt prevents decay. It stops the rot. And Jesus is saying, that's what I want my followers, my students, my apprentices to be like. I want them to be like the antiseptic for the world. But notice this, because it's really, really important for understanding Jesus' metaphor. 
Can salt work its preservative effect if you keep it separate from the meat? No, of course not. Salt preserves meat when it's rubbed into it. I said, do you see what that means for us as the church? It means we have to be in the world. We can't be cut off from it. If we're going to be faithful to Jesus' vision for the church, we can't stay safe in our own little Christian bubble. We've got to be out in the world and actively involved in the world. And what's more, Jesus' metaphor suggests that as Christians, we're meant to go where it hurts. We're meant to be like the firefighters who run towards the blaze rather than everyone else who runs away from it. When the church is true to itself as the church It sees the pain and suffering of the world and moves towards it, seeing it as an opportunity to be sought in that place or in that situation. It doesn't ask, is it safe? What on earth does that have to do with following a crucified Messiah? I remember uh, something that the principal of my former theological college, Michael Lloyd, suggested was one of the most important questions to ask in a parish. Where does it hurt? Where's the pain? Because he said that is where the church can be sought. That's what the resource food bank is. It's a response to the heartbreaking poverty we see around us and an attempt to step into it as sought. And frankly, I think the resource needs to be a more central part of the life of this church. And I want to encourage more of you to get involved with it because the needs are only going to get greater with the cost of living crisis. You know, there's a very, really good reason why remembering the poor, Galatians 2.10, was so important to the Apostle Paul and the early church, because it's part of our DNA as the church to be sought in places of decay. And remembering the poor goes beyond just economic poverty, because there are many other forms of poverty, physical poverty, Emotional poverty, mental poverty, spiritual poverty. A church that's faithful to his job description as the salt of the earth will remember the poor, whatever that poverty is. Salt must be in the meat to preserve it. But we can't stop there. Because no sooner does Jesus say, you are the salt salt of the earth, Then he goes on to say this, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Do you see what Jesus is saying? In order to be of any use to Jesus in the world, we've got to stay salt. For salt to have its proper effect, salt has to be distinct different from what it's being rubbed into. So on the one hand then Jesus is saying that we must be in the world but on the other hand he's saying that we mustn't be of the world. What the world needs is our saltiness. As the philosopher James K.A. Smith writes, the body of Christ is called to be that peculiar people who occupy creation and remind the world that it belongs to God. So the world needs not our worldliness, but our godliness. If we lose that, then we've lost what makes the church the church. 
and we're no use to the world. We're no use to Jesus. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, let me plead with you to heed Jesus's warning. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. If we won't live in the world distinctively as his people, he will toss us out with the trash. And friends, they're not my words, they're Jesus's words. So let the church take note. A few weeks ago, I came across an article in the Church Times, which said that on current mathematical trends, the Church of England will be extinct by the year 2062. Now, I'd venture to suggest that a major reason for that is because it looks so much like the world. You know what? There are churches growing in this country and get this. They're not the ones whose values are just the same as the surrounding culture. They're not the ones seeking to promote a sexual ethic that is out of step with God's word in a bid to be apparently relevant and missional. Jesus will throw us out and trample us underfoot if we will not be holy, distinct and different from the world for his sake. I'm not making this up. It's it's there in the text. Read it for yourself. That's why I really want you to have your Bibles open in front of you when I'm preaching. Check it. Make sure. To put it starkly, using the words of A.W. Tozer, the church that goes along with everything and stands against nothing until she is convinced that it's the safe and popular thing to do is not the church. And let me tell you now, I don't care one little bit about being popular. I care about being faithful. I'm not interested in just drawing a crowd. I want the crowd to be drawn to Jesus. And if it's not Jesus who's the centre of attention, then we've got it wrong. The missionary theologian Leslie Newbigin, who I quoted earlier, puts it well. The choice for the church in every age will always be Will our identity be shaped by scripture or by our culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? Now, I know my answer to that question. How about you? Will we be sought to bring out the God flavours in the world? Now, after telling his apprentices that they're to be the salt of the earth, Jesus then switches up his metaphors and tells them and us, you are the light of the world. Salt and light. These are the two images Jesus gives us of what the community gathered by and around him is to be. And if Jesus' metaphor of the church as salt was intended to tell us that we're meant to be in the world but not of the world, then Jesus' metaphor of the church as light is intended to tell us that to be the church is to be both visible, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, instead they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. But it's also to be attractive. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, the church is to be the public face of God's kingdom. 
Now let's just think a little bit more about that image that Jesus uses. Where do you need the light? You need it in the dark. As with the image of salt needing to be where there's decay, Jesus is saying that to be the church is to be amidst the darkness of this world. But again, and again, therefore, we're, we're to be in the world. But, but likewise, to be of use to the world in the dark, we have to be light. And therefore, again, we must not be of the world. Jesus uses the illustration of a lamp to make the really, really obvious point that it needs to be seen. The church must be visible. And that doesn't mean that we seek to parade our good works on show for all to see. Because Jesus will go on to make that point, precisely that point, uh, later on in the Sermon on the Mount. That then is not what Jesus is saying. Rather, Jesus is saying in the words of William Williman and Stanley Havas that for the church to truly be the church, the world must strike hard against something which is an alternative to what the world offers. Christians are tempted to become invisible in many ways, including, as I said earlier, by seeking to adopt the world's own set of values and ideas of what a good life looks like. Prior to the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine, it took exceptional courage and conviction to be known as a Christian. After the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine, it took exceptional courage and conviction not to be known as a Christian. The result was that the church became largely invisible. In a culture where everybody claims to be a Christian, it's an awful lot harder to see what true Christianity looks like. And we in the UK are living in an increasingly post-Christian landscape. And while that might seem like a threat because Christianity isn't protected anymore as it was even nominally, it's actually a huge opportunity. Because we can show people who think they know what being a Christian is all about, what being a Christian is really all about. And it's often nothing like what they imagine. But there is still this vestige of Christendom in the air. And we see this especially when people ask for their kids to be christened. Because it's just the thing to do. You know, uh, everyone in the country uh, is christened. That's just what happens with Christian nations. There is still that sense of it. And yet those people also seem shocked when they're asked to come to church. Why? Well, because there's this still this small vestige of the that Christendom assumption that, well, we're all Christians, whether we actually believe in Jesus or not. The church must be robust in its response that to be a Christian is to be gathered by and to Jesus. The great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. He says the followers of Jesus are the visible community of faith. Their discipleship is a visible act which separates them from the world. Or it is not discipleship. To flee into invisibility is to deny the call. Any community of Jesus which wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows him. What he's saying is that if Jesus isn't our why, we're not the church, no matter what building we meet in or what we call ourselves. Jesus takes it for granted that to be one of his disciples is to be different. 
not different for difference's sake, but different for Jesus's sake. He assumes that if we're really being discipled by him, rather than being discipled by the world around us, then we will look different. And not just different strange, though undoubtedly people would look at, will look at us and think, what a bunch of weirdos, but different attractive. Jesus tells us to let our light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I love the way that John Stoss explains this verse. He says, I sometimes think how splendid it would be if non-Christians, curious to discover the secret and source of our light, were to come up to us and inquire, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Wouldn't that be wonderful? People to look at our lives and say that. Just as the seasoning function of salt, which enhances the flavour of food, so for the church to be light is for us to brighten up the world around us with God's own light. And so I think Jesus imagines non-Christians looking at us as we're wrestling with cancer or bereavement and asking, how are you so calm in the midst of this? Where is your peace? Where does it come from? I think Jesus envisages non-Christians looking at us as we're struggling to make our marriage work and asking, why don't you just walk away? It's not worth it. I think Jesus envisages non-Christians looking at us as we foster uh, or adopt a child who's in the social care system and asking, why on earth did you do that? Isn't your life hectic enough as it is? Leslie Newbegin again says that we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Why are you living like this, Jesus? Duncan Campbell makes the same point in a different way when he says, what the world needs to see is the wonder and beauty of God-possessed personalities. Men and women with the life of God pulsating within, who practice the presence of God, and consequently make it easy for others to believe in God. That's what it means for us to shine. John Ortberg uh, makes the point, uh, and I think it's a really wonderful observation, that Jesus simply says, let your light shine. Not try harder to make your light shine. You know, lamps don't have to try hard. They glow because of what's going on inside them. And in saying this, he's riffing off Dallas Willard, who says that what matters most, contrary to our expectations, is not evangelism, but discipleship. He says, if churches really are enjoying fullness of life, evangelism will be unstoppable and largely automatic. The local assembly, for its part, can then become an academy where people throng from the surrounding community to learn how to live. It will be a school of life, for a disciple is but a pupil, a student, where all aspects of that life seen in the New Testament records are practised and mastered under those who have themselves mastered them through practice. Only by taking this as our immediate goal can we intend to carry out the Great Commission. Do you see what he's saying? 
He's saying, if you're so filled with the light of Christ, people will see you glow and they'll be drawn to you. So we don't need to worry ourselves thinking about the next evangelistic strategy so much as let's just be filled with the light of Jesus. If we're filled with the light of Jesus, people will come. People will want to know what's different about us. And so Jesus invites us, his followers, to live in such an authentic, attractive and compelling way that people say of us, I want whatever you've got. Wouldn't that be amazing? And it happens. I I love to read the biographies of Christians through the centuries because that's what happens to me so often as I read them. Not long ago, I finished the story of Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. And that's exactly what I found myself kept praying to God as I was reading it. Lord, I want what he has. And you know, Paul Cadman was a man like that in our midst. Someone in whom others saw a life lived to the full. And who thereby made people covet that same life to the full for themselves. And friends, it could happen to us too. More than that, I believe that Jesus wants it to happen for us too, because I don't believe that Jesus would have spoken these words if it was just a lofty ideal that isn't actually possible in real life. I want my life to speak of Jesus. I want to see your life speak of Jesus. I want this church's life to speak of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount can crush us if we hear it as a call to good advice. Do this to make yourself pleasing to God. But it's not good advice. It's good news. It's not an invitation for us to do, but an invitation to join in with what God is already doing in and through Jesus. And so if we're to be the kind of church that Jesus imagines here, it's only going to happen as we're pulled into his way of life. Because can you think of a person who embodies the Beatitudes more than Jesus? Can you think of anyone whose life was characterised more than Jesus by poverty of spirit and mourning and meekness and a hunger for righteousness and mercy and purity and peacemaking and who was persecuted? Can you think of anyone who's saltier than Jesus? Jesus, who left his throne in heaven to become human. And not just any human, but to become a servant. To take the lowest place, to die the filthiest, most degrading, most horrendous death possible for us. To run to where it hurts, whilst dancing to a different tune. Is there anyone of whom that's true more than Jesus? And can you think of anyone who has ever lived in such a profoundly attractive way? Can you think of anyone whose life is more attractive than his? Who's shown a better way to be human than him? If ever there was a human being fully alive, it was Jesus. So don't you see, the church isn't the sign of the upside down kingdom or in the world, but 
not of the world, or a visible and attractive alternative to the ways of the world, simply by trying really, really, really hard. Rather, the church will only be these things as it stays very, very, very near to Jesus. And so if we as the church are to be a billboard of blessing, the salt of the earth and the light of the world, it will only be, be, ever be because Jesus was first and his spirit lives and works in us. So let me ask you, do you want to be the kind of church that Jesus talks about here in the Sermon on, of the Mount? Well, I hope you do because, frankly, I have no interest in needing any other kind of church. This is what I'm pursuing because this is what Jesus wants us to pursue. The answer is Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. He is the one who turns our world upside down. He is the one who saves us from decay. He is the one who shows us a better way. We can only bless with his blessings. We can only season with his saltiness. We can only shine with his light. Saints, what a duty this is. But oh, oh, what a joy. What an unspeakable joy also. Let us pray. Oh, Jesus, I'm in awe of you. Lord, I love your church, but I'm filled with sorrow for how badly we've lived out what you've called us to be. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy. Forgive us for being so bland and so dull while claiming to know so flavoursome and radiant a Lord. Forgive us the ways we misrepresent you here in the world and the ways we take lightly that massive responsibility that we have to be your ambassadors here in this place. Forgive us when for fear of sticking out and for the love of our own ease and comfort we seek to blend in with the crowd instead of being proud to belong to you. Oh Lord would you give us hearts that heed that warning that unsalty salt will be thrown out and trampled on. Make us salty indeed. Oh Jesus make us a countercultural community in which people see through us to you as the animating power of our lives. Be the centre of this church. Be exalted as the upside-down king of the upside-down kingdom. Be the salt that makes us salty. Be the light with which we shine. Oh Lord, and make us the church you want us to be. We pray it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. <laughs>